Welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, Episode 6. I'm Mike Voyles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website containing tons of information about comic books, including tens of thousands of cover images. If you're curious about a particular issue, or just want to browse, Mike's is the place to go. As a comic collector myself, I always like to read things from the very beginning. Sometimes that can be difficult when early issues are scarce or expensive, Fortunately, I've put together a collection that contains every story ever published by DC in one form or another. This collection goes all the way back to 1935, when the company was still known as National Ally. I'm going to read these early comics and share with you, the listeners, recaps of the stories, information about the creators, and important moments in the history of the company that would become known as DC. Many of the earliest comics took their lead from newspaper strips of the time period. Newspaper strips were serialized with a portion of the story delivered in each day's paper, or each week in the case of Sunday strips. Early DC, aka National Comics, did the same thing in which stories were serialized over many issues. If I want to read a single issue at a time, I would only get a small amount of 20 different stories. Rather than do this, I've decided to optimize the reading experience and cover the early features by following the storylines across many issues. In each episode of my podcast, I'll be covering several stories. The stories I'll be covering in this episode debuted in New Fun number 3 through number 6 from 1935, but they all ran for many issues afterwards. This episode, I'll also be covering some major moments in DC history. But for now, let's dive right into the stories. In 1938, Vincent Sullivan was an editor at National Allies, searching for content to fill a new comic series, Action Comics. His search for new material led him to Max Gaines and Sheldon Mayer, who recommended a feature. Sullivan elected to publish that feature in the first issue, and Superman had finally arrived. A year later, he prompted Bob Kane to develop a feature for Detective Comics that would ultimately lead to the creation of Batman. These landmarks would come to define Sullivan's legacy as an early DC editor. But before he sat in the editorial chair, he was a young artist. In 1935, at age 24, Sullivan created Spike, Spalding, and Pincus, both of which debuted in New Fun Number 3. Spike was a blonde-headed young boy. I'd guess that he was meant to be around 8 years old. Pincus was Spike's sidekick, and often had a small three-panel gag strip, which ran alongside Spike. Unfortunately, Pincus is a black caricature. The way he is drawn would be considered offensive in modern audiences. Not only that, but Pincus is depicted, depicted in early episodes smoking a cigar, yet he appears to be at about the same age as Spike. Talk about politically incorrect. The plot of Spike's story is that he bears a striking resemblance to Philip, the boy king of Petrania. Philip's enemies kidnap Spike with the intent of secretly replacing the real king with a stooge under their control. Pincus witnesses the kidnapping and stows away on the ship to Petrania to save his friend. The boys are helped by a friendly sailor on the ship wearing the red and white striped shirt. Waldo, anyone? But this Waldo is pretty beefy. When the boys are rescued by the sailor, the crooks kidnap the real Philip. They then plant rumors that the king has fled the country. The people threaten to revolt unless the king appears. 
Spike, Pincus, and the Sailor reach the palace, and Spike takes the king's place to quell the revolt. They then rescue the real king and are rewarded for their efforts. Spike's strip lasted until more fun number 30, published in 1938. I presume that Sullivan's editorial duties left him less time to draw the strip. Unlike most, though, it did receive a reasonably complete ending in which Spike and Pincus return to their families in America. The last strip does say to be continued, but of course the story does not. Sullivan drew the strip in a cartoony style. Despite the kidnapping and political intrigue, the feature's art style lent a light-hearted touch that made it appropriate for the young audience these comics were meant to appeal to. I was actually surprised this had as much story as it did. I had largely expected it to be purely a humor feature based on the art I saw prior to reading it. It's also the second of these early strips to feature a main character who is a doppelganger for a foreign ruler. This was also done in Sondra of the Secret Service, as noted in my second episode. In addition to Pincus being drawn in a style that would be unsuitable for publication today, Spike also appears in Blackface in Morphon number 21. So this strip is hitting all the racially inappropriate notes. Despite that, I think Pincus is an interesting character and is actually given a personality, more so than the rather generic and vanilla Spike. Pincus does also give up smoking. In fact, in a gag piece in Morphon number 17, he finds a cigar laying on the sidewalk. He picks it up, takes a puff, then gags. He then makes a New Year's resolution to stick to candy and ice cream. I wonder if this was just a gag or a reaction to the depiction of him smoking in earlier episodes. I can't believe that it would be thought to be appropriate for an 8-year-old to smoke, even back in 1935, when smoking wasn't known to be as deadly as it is now. Yep, people still do it. Yeah. Lastly, it's worth mentioning that Spike's strip appeared on the cover of Morphon number 8. Later issues would not feature strips on the cover. They would instead depict a scene, not necessarily associated with a story from inside the comic. Vin Sullivan drew many of these early covers. Some of them would feature young boys. Now, it may be just Sullivan's artistic style, but one of the boys looks just like Spike. A character resembling Pincus even pops up on the cover of Morphon number 18 with an Eskimo, also drawn as a racial caricature. It's unfortunate that these stereotypes happen, but I'm willing to accept these comics as they are artifacts from a different time with different sensibilities. Not everyone can do that. I would certainly be offended if this was done in a modern comic. Sullivan created another strip called Charlie Fish, which debuted in New Fun number 4. Unlike Spike strips, episodes of Charlie Fish were one-offs without a continuing story. The strip was simply played for laughs. The only recurring character, other than Charlie himself, was a manservant named Pluto, who was drawn in the same style as Pincus. Apparently this is how Sullivan drew all blacks. Shameful, but as I said, it was typical for the time. Charlie was actually the first strip to get more than one page in a single issue, as two separate Charlie Fish strips appeared in New Fun number 5. Charlie was featured on the cover of New Fun number 6, and had another strip inside. Now you might think, with this kind of exposure, that Charlie Fish was a long-lasting strip. It wasn't. The final episode appeared in More Fun number 8, 
it lasted only five issues. Until More Fun number nine, the dimension of New Fun and More Fun were larger than a normal comic. Therefore, many pages contained an additional row of panels at the top and bottom of the page. Most often, it was drawn by the same artist who did the main page. Some were comedic in nature, others related historical facts. The page containing the Charlie Fish strip in New Fun number 4 had a one-off Sullivan creation called Cyrano. Other issues had a character named Fanny. These were simply gag strips and not particularly noteworthy. In any case, they did not continue after Charlie Fish ended. Sullivan would occasionally contribute other filler material to more fun. And of course he did a lot of covers. His most famous cover appeared on the first issue of DC's third title, Detective Comics. Next up is Brad Hardy. His strip debuted in New Fun number 3. The first adventure is titled The Underground Kingdom of the Snake Men. It was unusual for stories to be titled at this point, so a title here is a rarity. The adventure begins in the skies over Outer Mongolia. Brad Hardy and his companion Lorraine Lewis are searching for the girl's father. Their plane is forced to land in the jungle, presumably from bad weather, but it's not really explained why they landed. In the jungle, they stumble upon a tribe of snake men, which look like African jungle men, except with green skin and snake heads. Brad sees they have a human captive, so rather than pass them by, he starts a fight. Brad successfully runs off the snake men and releases the prisoner, Cardos, prince of the underground kingdom of Agarti. The snake men then return in force. Brad, Lorraine, and Cardos head for a cave to take refuge. But inside the cave is a city of rat men. Brad and his friends are caught between the rats and the snakes, but the rats and the snakes end up fighting each other, allowing the humans to descend deeper into the cavern. However, the rat men attack again. This time, the humans are caught and taken to King Naga, Cardos' rival. Naga decides to keep Lorraine as his personal servant, and he sends the two men to perish in combat with the Black Magician. These first three episodes were drawn by Nationals art editor Dick Letterer, who also drew Bubby and Beevil and Caveman Capers. The top of each page had a few extra panels entitled Weird Asia, containing facts about Mongolia and the Dalai Lama. Letterer left the strip, turning the art show chores over to W.C. Brigham in New Fun Number 6. The reason for Letterer's departure is actually explained on the Fun Mail page in Issue 6. It reads, On this page, we show a picture of Dick Letterer, who has become famous overnight. His book, Voodoo, Fire, and Haiti, was the literary guild choice for August. It has brought him so much fame and money and new contracts that he cannot find time to do all the work required as art editor of New Fun. Dick Letterer has worked hard and long in the interest of New Fun readers and artists and will always be grateful. We hope he will never be too busy to remember his fun pals. So Letterer departed National for a writing gig. The Voodoo Fire book was actually published in 1932 in German, but was translated and published in English in 1935. Letterer's last published work for National was the Midshipman Dewey strip in New Fun number 6. Tom McNamara 
briefly replaced Letter as art editor at National. The name of Brad Hardy's replacement artist, W.C. Brigham, should not be unfamiliar to listeners of this show. Brigham worked on both Jack Woods and Sondra of the Secret Service, which I covered in my first two episodes. His tenure on Brad Hardy's strip would be short-lived, though. He only drew issues 6, 7, and 8. Back to the story, Brad and Cardos are taken to the Black Magician of the Dre, who uses mental powers to make Brad see his worst fears. Cardos turns the table on the magician by showing him a vision of his own. The distraction allows Brad to grab a weapon. Then the magician changes into the shape of a giant snake. Brad throws his weapon at King Naga, who cries out in pain. This distracts the black magician, causing him to revert to human form. Brad knocks him out. Cardos and Lorraine then join him in making a run for it. However, the magician recovers and encircles the group in a wall of fire. Side note here, in Newfound number 6, Brad and Cardos were taken away to another room to meet the Black Magician. However, at the beginning of Morpha number 7, they are back in the throne room with King Naga and, and Lorraine. Even though no time has passed, Brad is locked in combat with the Magician in snake form. Just another oddity of these early serials, I suppose. Details got lost or changed between episodes. Also, Morpha number 7 was the last Brad Hardy strip printed in four color. His remaining adventures were all in black and white, or two color black and red. More fun number eight. Carlos uses magic of his own to break a wall, which floods the chamber and douses the wall of fire. The black magician sends rat men after Brad and his friends. Brad locates a secret door and leads everyone through it. In more fun number nine, the feature was expanded from one page to two pages. A. Leslie Ross took over on the art. Ross was a pulp artist, best known for his work on westerns. He also drew the Slim and Text strip in Morfun's sister publication, New Comics. The western emphasis of Ross's other artwork makes Brad Hardy an odd choice of strip for him to do. Brad's adventures remind me of more of a Dungeons and Dragons adventure. Not a western in any way. Ross's stint at National was very brief. Following this, he did some freelance work for movie studios, Warner, Columbia, and Paramount. He then served his country in World War II. After the war, Ross painted covers for paperback novels and illustrated for men's adventure magazines, such as Cavalier. In the 1960s, he began operating a private art school. Ross passed away in 1989. Meanwhile, Brad and his friends enter a chamber containing a large stone idol, which Carlos informs them is the god of the ape men. Sure enough, ape men show up and attack. While the fight rages, the stone idol comes to life. The ape men drop to their knees and bow their heads to the idol. This gives Brad a chance. He grabs a spear and throws it at the giant, striking it in the neck. The three humans then flee for their lives. The ape men give pursuit until they reach an area covered in spiderwebs. The ape men are afraid to follow. A giant man-sized spider confronts the trio of humans. Cardos charges it. Brad comes to his aid and they kill the spider. When the fight is over, though, Lorraine is missing. The rescuers are revealed to be Queen Claudia 
and Lord Zion. Brad is invited back to the Queen's palace and is forced to fight Zion to earn the right to share Claudia's throne. Even though he has no wish to fight, Brad is compelled to do so. Of course he wins. Zion is killed by a sea monster. Then Brad becomes king. He is sent on a hunt for a Baracula, basically a large swordfish. Brad suspects that the queen wants him eliminated. Fortunately, during the hunt, he finds the passage back to the surface. After surviving the Baracula, he and Cardos escape. Brad and his friend make their way through the jungle and come to the castle where Lorraine is being held. They get inside and find General Porgo sleeping. Brad tries to get Porgo's sword without awakening him, but he fails. The two men fight. Carlos distracts Porgo, allowing Brad to get the upper hand. Then, well, actually, that's it. The series was discontinued in Morph Prime number 31, published in May 1938. Did Brad win the fight with Porgo? Did he rescue Lorraine and free her from the spell which affected her mind? What about the original quest to find her father in Mongolia? None of these questions was ever answered. Brad Hardy has not been seen since. One thing to note here is that the feature did not appear in more fun number 29. That issue was skipped, so the feature ran from number 3 to number 28, and then returned for two issues in 30 and 31. This feature reminded me a bit of Flash Gordon, without some of the sci science fiction elements like ray guns. That strip may have had some influence on this. This was definitely an action-packed serial, although at times it went a little too fast. The artwork was decent, even though it was pretty uneven, especially at the beginning when the artists were coming and going. The prolific Hickey uh, brought some much-needed stability to the strip. I liked his work here much better than on Wing Brady uh, that I covered in a previous episode. Brad's world is reminiscent of Skartaris from the Warlord series, populated by races of strange creatures. I mentioned earlier that it had a D&D &D feel to it. It's definitely an early example of a sword and sorcery type feature. Very enjoyable overall. I would have liked to see the conclusion of this story. Tom Cooper, the artist from Buckskin Jim, created a strip called In the Wake of the Wander, which debuted in New Fun number 3. Cooper is credited on the strip as Mac Fergus, which was his middle name. Following his comic work, Cooper did many oil paintings of maritime themes, so it's no surprise that this tale is a seagoing adventure, Cooper's area of interest apparently. He also drew Midshipman Dewey in Castaway Island, which followed similar settings. In the Wake of the Wander focuses on seaman Captain Grimm, who one day enlists the aid of Jake and Slim to help man his sailing ship, named the Wander. Sometime after heading to sea, the crew discover a derelict ship adrift in the waters. They board the boat and find a note about a mysterious island where the crew has gone missing. One delirious survivor is found. He claims to have been attacked by a smoke monster and warns them about the others. Oh wait, that didn't really happen. The survivor actually tells them about the death that leaves no mark. Captain Grimm decides to head for the mysterious island of missing men. On the way, they pass a navy ship. The captain of the ship gives Grimm firearms and use of three of his men. They reach the island at night and seek shelter inside an old blockhouse.
A guard is posted, but he soon disappears. In the morning, the group heads into the jungle where they find a mysterious hatch. Okay, no, there is no hatch. But that would have been cool. They really face a tribe of natives. However, the natives fall dead to an invisible force, the death that leaves no mark. The group returns to the blockhouse in Morphun number 7, just in time for a native raid. The art of this chapter is terrible. I have, I have to wonder if this was a ghost artist or a rush job. Morphun number 8 also features a different art style with heavy use of blacks. This makes me think that even though everything was credited to Mac Fergus, a.k.a. Tom Cooper, there were multiple artists involved here. During the fight with the natives, the blockhouse is set on fire. Captain Grimm is forced to jump from atop the burning building. He catches a tree branch to slow his descent. It breaks, he falls, and lands on top of a stranger, Benjamin Linus, who tells him that he's been trapped on the island after landing in a balloon. Oh wait, no, that doesn't happen. The man actually claims to be an honest traitor. Grimm meets, him, meets with his men, then goes into the jungle alone. He sees the stranger talking to the natives who take the man prisoner. Grimm follows. He spots a shadowy smoke monster. Okay, it's not a smoke monster, but it is a mysterious shadow. In its wake is a dead man. After making his way through more of the jungle, Grimm finds the native village. He also sees the stranger is free. The stranger then meets the shadowy creature. Before Grimm can interrupt the meeting, the natives jump him and take him to their leader, Jacob. Oh wait, no, uh, his name is Kango. Kango has proclaimed himself Lord of the Island, which Grimm warns him that will make him the enemy of Degenol, the Lord of the Island groupings. Kango tries to, to form an alliance with Grimm, who asks about the traitor. Kango tells him that anyone who touches the white traitor dies by the death that leaves no mark. A prisoner is then brought in. It's Holcomb, one of Grimm's men. He brings word that Jangle is on the island and preparing to attack. Kango doesn't believe it, but Grimm agrees to the alliance. Then the traitor walks in. The natives refer to him as Filson. The man orders the natives to capture Grimm and Holcomb. They comply. Holcomb gets free and uses a gong to, single, to signal a passing navy boat with Morse code. The natives then recapture him. The navy men head for the island while the rest of Grimm's men also prepare a rescue. Once he is free, Grimm goes after Filson. While they are fighting, Jangle stands by waiting to stab Grimm. Kango comes to his aid by knifing Jangle. In doing so, he sets himself up as the new lord of the islands. The navy arrives, but before Filson can be turned over, he disappears. Filson enters an underground passage, turns a wheel, and causes the island to jump to a different time period. No, wait, that doesn't happen. Instead, he jumps in a rowboat and heads for a schooner anchored just off the coast. Grimm and the Navy lieutenant give chase in a patrol boat. They damage Filson's schooner. So the traitor is forced to go back to the island. On the shore, Filson falls to his death, but leaves no mark. Kango explains that he used a dark blowgun to fell Filson. Grimm tells the Navy man that Filson was running a drug trade on the island and used the death that leaves no mark 
as a means of scaring off the white men. So ends the adventure in Morphin number 15. WTF. Okay, this is a crazy one that makes very little sense. Except for a couple of weird spots that I already mentioned, the artwork on these stories was actually pretty good. Still, I was left more puzzled by it. Lost was actually uh, made more sense of the story at times. The smoke monster or shadow thing is never explained. It's just weird. I enjoy a good mystery, but this was not good. Can't say I'd recommend it, despite the reasonably good artwork. The feature continued four more issues, ending in more fun number 19. Those were entitled Seagold, A Tale of Captain Grin. The previous title, In the Wake of the Wander, only appears on number 16. More uneven artwork was used on these episodes, furthering my belief that multiple artists worked on this feature. They were signed Tom Cooper and not Mac Fergus, though, for these issues. In this story, Captain Grimm tells his men about his younger days when he served on a ship called Ariel under the command of Captain Angus McPherson. During his first voyage to America, he saved the life of the ship's first mate, Buck Wilson, who was the target of a mutinous crew. Doing so did not earn him favor with the rest of the crew. The ship's soon found a derelict ship full of gold. Nubbins, the third mate, decided to take the ship for himself, so he and the boarding party packed up the ship and began sailing away with Grimm on board. The ship escaped from McPherson's, anchored offshore of a small island, then set out to sea again. This crew also started a mutiny. While it was going on, Grimm spotted another nearby ship, that's where the story ended in more fun number 19. Captain Grimm's further adventures have never been revealed. I do find it interesting that many of these ocean-faring stories in the early issues. Clearly, Adventures at Sea still held a mystery and excitement for young boys that I don't think exists in this day and age. Yes, Pirates of the Caribbean is a popular movie series, but the sea is no longer as mysterious in this era of jet travel as it used to be. The world is a lot smaller now. I think in many ways the idea and adventure presented in fictional space travel has replaced the old maritime adventures. Certainly space offers more possibilities for fiction writers than the sea does. I think the desire to explore uncharted places is what drives much of that. And that desire is still there. The setting is just different now. A page containing comic shorts appeared in New Fun number 3, drawn by artist Shush. This was the same artist who drew Jigger and Ginger Strip from the previous two issues. I talked about that strip in my third episode, but I had no information about the artist. I have now discovered that his full name was Adolf Shush. He sold his first cartoon illustration in 1926. He was part of a three-man cartoon agency alongside Lawrence Larrier, the original artist of Barry O'Neill. In the 1940s, Shush drew political cartoons and magazine illustrations for The New Yorker and Colliers. In 1947, he served as an instructor at Larrier's Professional School of Cartooning. Another one of the instructors at the school was one of my favorite artists, Henry Boltmoff. You can find an entire gallery of Boltmoff's DC work on my website. Shush's comic short piece that appears in this issue 
contains several one-panel gags. Another page of comic shorts appears in New Fun number 5. This type of filler piece would become a staple of comics in the 1940s and 1950s. Two short-lived fact features which debuted in New Fun number 4. The first was entitled Man's Inventions. The feature appeared only in New Fun number 4 and 5 and depicted the evolution of two important inventions in the history of mankind. Issue 4 focused on the spear and issue 5 featured the needle. Both were drawn by the same artists. Issue number 4 was signed Leighton Budd, who was a cartoonist known for drawing with a boneless style. His cartoons appeared in newspapers as early as 1900. The art style in these strips is completely different from Budd's boneless work. I did find some book covers drawn by Budd from around 1913 that resemble the art from Man's Inventions much more closely. Budd's boneless style was on display in a short filler strip entitled Midsummer Day's Dream, which appeared in New Fun Number 5. The second feature to debut in New Fun Number 4 was entitled Famous Flights. It ran until More Fun Number 8 and depicted many scenes of flight in all its forms throughout history. The first three episodes were actually entitled Al Whitney's Famous Flights. Whitney was apparently the artist and or writer of the series since his name is signed at the end of the strip in New Fun Number 6. No other byline or credit appears. I have been unable to track down any info on Whitney. In the next two issues, number 7 and 8, the strip is called Thor's Famous Flights. They were likely drawn by the same artist who drew the Wing Walker strip that appeared in Morphun's sister publication, New Comics. Those were also signed Thor. Whether this was also Al Whitney, I don't know. The art style between the episodes is similar enough that it could be the same guy. After four consecutive monthly issues, New Fun number 5 was published three months after number 4. Issue number 5 is the first edited by DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson after the departure of the original series editor Lloyd Jacket. Many of the artists departed also, and new ones took over. The publication delay may have been a result of the turnover. It might also have been financing related as Wheeler Nicholson often struggled to pay his bills and his artists. In any case, New Fun Number 5 saw the debut of a half dozen new strips. Ramblin' Jim by Stan Randall was the first of the new strips. This half-page strip appeared on the inside front cover of New Fun Number 5. The title character is Jim Hunter, a young boy who has run away from his guardian after being beaten. Wow, <laughs> another story of a runaway kid, just like Little Linda. I wonder why they romanticized the runaway in these early comics so much. In any case, Jim encounters a wanted crook named Fishy Gill and is taken in by a kindly man named Old Scratch. The young boy and old man catch Fishy and his gang, then turn them over to the sheriff. Ramblin' Jim, also called Rambler Jim, appeared in New Fun Number 5, 6, More Fun Number 7 and 8, and More Fun Number 10. He also crossed over into Morphun's sister publication. He was in New Comics number 4. A year later, a final episode was printed in New Adventure Comics number 14. Artist Stan Randall also drew Slim Pickens, another feature which debuted in New Fun number 5. Slim Pickens is a man who inherits a haunted house from his late aunt. 
When he moves in, he is attacked by men dressed as ghosts, who are covering up their counterfeiting operation. With the help of an escaped gorilla, Slim catches the crooks, then returns the gorilla to the circus for a reward. Sounds like an episode of Scooby-Doo to me. Slim's adventures lasted until Morpha number 10. He did make one other appearance in New Comics number 9. I don't know much about Randall's life. I do know that he went into advertising and drew some ads that appeared in many comics in the 1940s, such as the Pepsi Cops. He also went on to draw the 1950s newspaper strip right around home. Ramblin' Jim and Slim Pickens were his only contributions at National, other than a couple of four-panel gag strips that sometimes shared the page with Jim and Slim. A short-lived strip called The Professor began in New Fun Number 5. The strip, created by Eugene Kosick, only ran five issues. The first two episodes share a page with the gag strip Mr. Plots, also by Kosick. The strip starred the professor, an old man with a ZZ Top style beard. He hires two guards to protect his secret formula from three burglars. Hijinks ensue as the crooks try a different approach to get the formula in each issue. The art is just goofy. The story isn't much better. It's slapstick humor, but not well done. Other than finding a couple of stories he drew for Centaur, I don't know anything else about Cossack. One of the strips in Centaur's funny picture stories drawn by Cossack was Professor Joshwink. This may have been a continuation of The Professor, since we do learn that his name is Josh in Morphun number 9. I don't have access to the Centaur issue, so I can't confirm it. Overall, my reaction? Meh. Treasure Island is an adventure novel written by Robert Louis Stevenson, first published in 1883. The story centered around pirates and is largely responsible for much of pirate lore in today's popular culture. Things like parrots and X marks the spot come from the book. Prior to the creation of National Allied, founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had already created a syndicated comic strip adapting the novel. I've never seen samples, but the Paul Levitz book, 75 Years of DC Comics, published in 2010, states that Sven Elvin was the artist on the 1925 strip. Another adaptation of Treasure Island was published in New Fun No. 5 through More Fun No. 11. Although the art on this version is often credited entirely to Sven Elvin, the first few episodes were actually drawn by Charles Flanders, the original artist on Sandra of the Secret Service. Flanders signed and dated the pages that appeared in New Fun No. 6 and More Fun No. 7. The date is 1934, which means they were drawn prior to the publication of New Fun No. 1. Were these simply the comic strips referred to in the Levitt's book, put into comic book form? If so, why were they dated 1934, when the strip was supposed to have appeared in 1925? I don't know for sure. The episode in More Fun No. 8 is laid out using a panel grid. The previous three issues featured rows of panels, but the panels in a given row were not separated by white space. Since number eight is the first not signed by Flanders, I suspect it may have been drawn by another artist. Number nine is in black and white and expanded to two pages. The art style changes again, and the feature is again unsigned. Sven Elvis signs the last two strips in Morpha number 10 and 11. The art, however, does not match any of the previous issues. 
So I don't know actually who drew the feature in More Fun number 8 and 9. The Flanders episodes and the art in number 8 were pretty good. The rest of the strip, however, suffers really from sketchy art. I like Sven Elvin in later work, but not here. He contributed a lot of work to National in the 1930s. This was his first. I will be profiling him in a later episode. Like the previous novel adaptation of Ivanhoe, which began in New Fun Number 1, the story of Treasure Island is told through text and pictures, but the dialogue balloons are hardly used, with the exception of a few panels in the Flanders Drawn episodes. I had a similar distaste for the style of the adaptation, the same way I did for Ivanhoe, in that the pictures and words don't really work together like a comic book should. It's like the writer wrote the prose first without thinking about the illustrations at all, then the artist just drew a scene. It's not a really good for a comic, although the story itself does seem interesting. I confess that I've never read the book. After More Fun Number 11, the strip is discontinued and never finished. The adventure seemed to be just getting underway with Jim Hawkins heading out to sea. Maybe I'll pick up the book someday and read the whole thing. I guess that's a better reaction than I had to Ivanhoe, which did not make me want to read the novel. Of the strips that started in New Fun Number 5, Bob Merritt had the longest run. It was drawn by Leo Omelia, the artist from Barry O'Neill, and one of my favorites of these early artists. The story stars Bob Merritt, who has invented an aircraft of revolutionary design. The plane, known as the Super, looks like a taxicab with stubby wings and a nose propeller instead of wheels. Later on, the plane was called the Bumblebee. Bob has the help of several assistants, including Buzz, Shorty, Lefty, Tex, and others. I love Buzz's exclamation from the first issue. Foul my spark plugs! The plot begins with the murder of Cyrus Campbell, a wealthy investor in Bob's latest project. With the investor dead, Bob is forced to take on a dangerous assignment to an Alaskan gold mine that can only be reached by Bob's new plane. But the prospector who found the mine has been replaced by a crook. Like most features, Bob's strip was expanded from one page per issue to two, beginning with more fun number nine. The banner at the top of the page now refers to the feature as Bob Merritt, Gentleman Adventurer and Inventor and His Flying Pals. The plot continues with the fake prospector contacting his gang, which has ties to a foreign power in the Pacific. This, of course, was 1935, several years before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Although the country isn't mentioned by name, I definitely think it was intended to be Japan. The people are all drawn in the typical style of the day, with yellow skin. Anyway, the fake is soon exposed, and a race for the gold begins. A gang of crooks, headed by Monk Morton, delays Bob and captures Dickie Saunders, the youngest of Bob's men. He escapes from the mobsters, only to be recaptured by the Asians that have already found the mine and are taking the gold. Bob is also captured after discovering the Asian camp in, the, in a crater of a dormant volcano. Dickie's life is threatened to make Bob comply with the order to surrender. After issuing orders to his men under duress, Bob escapes with Dickie. Bob returns to warn his men, while Dickie defuses a load of dynamite planted by the mobsters. Finally, a terrific three-way battle takes place in the air between Bob's forces, the Asians, and the mobsters. Bob lands his own plane in the volcano crater, 
just as the last of the Asian transport planes has finished loading in its gold. The strip features some outstanding art by Leo Emilia, including his specialty, airplane battles. However, despite the good art, the story itself was not all that interesting. Despite running more than two dozen issues, it was never finished. It ends with Bob running towards the last transport. I must admit that I had a hard time focusing while reading this strip. I've been able to plow through much of this pre-hero material, good or bad, without much trouble. But I couldn't do it here. It took me three sittings to make it through the 46 pages of Bob Merritt's story. Entire sections of the story just seemed to go nowhere, and others dragged on for far too long. Even the air battle action sequence failed to truly excite me. Obviously, this strip did not turn out to be one of my favorites. Tom Cooper, the artist of Buckskin Jim and In the Wake of the Wander, created another feature in New Fun Number 5. Entitled Along the Main Line, this one centered on the railroads. The rail industry has been in long decline in recent decades. There was a time when railroads were king, especially in the 1800s under the ownership of Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt. I suspect that in 1935, the railways still inspired a sense of adventure in young boys, which is probably not true today. Along the main line followed the adventures of Ed and Jake, two railroad workers. The early issues were essentially one-off strips that did not continue into the next. In the first episode, Ed and Jake successfully get a derailed car off the tracks before a speeding train hits it. Another adventure has them stopping a pair of train robbers. The first two installments also had short gag strips called Just Bugs at the bottom of the page. Beginning in More Fun number 9, along the main line was turned into a serial with continuing adventures. The serial involves crooks robbing a mail express train. Ed and Jake try to stop them and are nearly killed. They believe their boss, Dawkins, was an inside man on the robbery since he knew about it just as it was happening. Dawkins fires the men for abandoning their posts, but it's really just because they know too much. Ed and Jake join forces with Malvern, a government agent, to prove their theory and get their jobs back. The trail leads them to Slick Carter and his gang, who intend to blow up the bridge. The boys stop the demolition, and Jake is taken hostage. Malvern and Ed rescue him, capture Carter, and prove his connection to Dawkins. However, the crooks get away and make it to a ship where they scheme to commit another crime. Before the details of their plan are revealed, the series ends in Morphine number 19. This corresponds with Cooper's departure from National in early 1937. Unfortunately, I did not find this feature all that engaging. The artwork was not Cooper's best, although I did like his trains, ships, and planes. The strip alternated between color and black and white. I liked the art better in black and white. My favorite drawing in the whole piece was the explosion at the bridge in Morphine number 15. It's a dynamic shot, and I like the expression on the crook's face. My disinterest in the strip stems largely from the premise, which I didn't really care about. Like I said, these days railroads and stories about them don't inspire the same feelings as they did in previous generations. At least that's my take on it. That brings me to new fun number six, the final issue before the title was changed to more fun with number seven. Frank of the Frontier appeared in new fun number six. This was one of the 
few comic stories drawn by Henry Muheim. The others were published by Centaur. Muheim was born in 1882 and drew primarily children's books, such as a 1939 edition of Pinocchio. Frank is a frontiersman who has an encounter with an Indian. The Indian shoots Frank in the arm with an arrow, then moves in for the kill. The story says to be continued, but this is actually the only appearance of Frank of the Frontier. Decent artwork? I can't really comment much on the story as it's only 12 panels and it never really got a chance to develop. Now I've already mentioned that a number of strips that appeared in New Fun were inspired by popular newspaper strips of the day. None probably more so than Skipper Hicks. One look at the strip and you can plainly see that it's a Popeye ripoff. The strip by artist John Patterson appeared in only three issues from New Fun number 6 to More Fun number 8. If you recall from my previous episodes, I mentioned that two national editors left the company in 1936 and took with them some completed artwork. Some of the national artists went with them, including Patterson. Skipper Hicks continued at the new Comics Magazine Company under the name Skipper Ham Shanks. Skipper is a sailor who is contacted by Sponge Nose Kelly to go after a cache of gold and silver located on an island made inaccessible due to dangerous whirlpools. Skipper and his comedy relief pal, Soup Ladle Jones, agree to help. They are joined on the expedition by Minnie and Mary, Sponge Nose's wife and daughter. Skipper successfully navigates the whirlpools and reaches the Isle of Gillyfish. The island is inhabited by people who think glass is rare. Therefore, gold and silver are worthless, but pop bottles are used as currency. The strip is humorous, but not exactly funny, at least not for adults. I think a kid in 1935 would have enjoyed it, though. Another short-lived strip, Henry Duval, debuted in New Fun Number 6. Duval is a French soldier of fortune and swordsman. Given the dress and weapons used in the feature, I'd guess it was set in the 17th century, just like the book The Three Musketeers. The story begins with Duval sword-fighting in the road with a, when a carriage passes. Intrigued by the woman in the cart, Duval follows it and helps fight off a group of brigands. He then learns that the coach carries the king traveling incognito. Duval volunteers to guard the king when he returns home. The king's other men distrust the swordsman and fought against him. The first two episodes in New Fun Number 6 and More Fun Number 7 are in black and white. More Fun Number 8 features the first page in color for the strip, but like has happened on several other strips, there appears to be a missing part of the story that happens between Morphon number 7 and number 8. In any case, the story resumes with Duval evacuating the king when a group of enemy musketeers attack. Duval himself is captured. The strip is discontinued after Morphon number 10 without a real resolution to the story. The only really notable thing about the strip are the two young men who created it. You may have heard of them, Jerome Siegel and Joe Schuster. Siegel and Schuster met at Cleveland's Glenville High School in 1930. Jerry was already a science fiction fan and had created one of the very first fanzines, Cosmic Stories, in 1929. He was also fond of movies, especially those starring Douglas Fairbanks. It's reasonable to assume that Siegel drew inspiration for Henry Duvall from one of Fairbanks' swashbuckling movie roles. Joe Schuster was the artist with a dynamic yet rough style. The two worked together on, a high, on the high school paper and after graduation tried breaking into comics. 
They sent out many submissions, including some featuring their new creation, Superman. The myth is, is that all the publishers summarily rejected Superman as amateurish. But, as told in the Gerard Jones book, Men of Tomorrow, there may actually have been some interested parties even before Max Gain and Sheldon Mayer recommended the, sh the strip to Vin Sullivan in 1938. In any case, the boys had some near misses with publications. The publisher of 1933's Detective Dan agreed to publish their work, then reneged when comics appeared to be less than lucrative for publishers. Siegel and Schuster also completed work on two strips for the Cleveland Shopping News, but once again the deal fell through before their work reached print. Finally, in 1935, after the publication of New Fun began, Siegel sent several proposals to Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. The Major accepted two. A letter from the Major has also turned up expressing interest in the potential Superman strip. The boys then set to work on two, the two accepted strips and quickly sent them back to National for publication in New Fun number 6. The boys had finally succeeded in getting published, earning 5 or 6 dollars a page for their work. The Duvall strip didn't last. One claim even suggests that the, only the first two episodes of the strip were actually done by Siegel and Schuster. The artwork still looks like Schuster's to me, though. The last strip in number 10 is actually signed Hugh Langley instead of carrying the Siegel and Schuster byline. Two text stories appearing in Superman number 3 and 4 would also be signed Hugh Langley. Siegel often wrote under other names such as Herbert S. Fine in his sci-fi magazines, so it's reasonable to assume that Langley is simply one of Siegel's pseudonyms. There are plenty of books that can provide more detail on Siegel and Schuster including Men of Tomorrow, which I recommend. There is a relatively new book, Superboys, The Amazing Adventures of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, by Brad Ricca. It's still on my nightstand, but I've yet to read it. In addition to the Henry Duvall strip, Siegel and Schuster created another feature which debuted in New Fun number 6. Dr. Occult, the ghost detective, had his first adventure serialized over four issues. It begins with the ghost detective using a magic talisman to ward off a vampire who is attacking a man in the alley. Following the skirmish, the man, whose name is Sander Amster, returns home to his wife. The following morning, Amster calls the doctor when his wife is found with vampire bite marks on her neck. The following evening, Rose Psychic, a cult's assistant, takes the place of Mrs. Amster and is used as bait for the vampire attack. Rose tries to use a gun loaded with silver bullets, but they have no effect on the vampire who disappears. The following day, a man calling himself the Vampire Master threatens the city. He promises to unleash his vampires against the city unless he is paid. Dr. Occult promises to help and uses his only lead, Mrs. Amster. The woman under the spell of the Vampire Master tries to kill her husband. After stopping her, Occult forces the woman to lead him to the Vampire Master. She does, but, in the words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap! It is then revealed that the Vampire Master is actually a scientist who invented a machine that, creature, that creates creatures from his imagination, including a duplicate of Mrs. Amster. When the scientist tries to destroy his creation, she attacks him, setting the lab on fire. The real Mrs. Amster releases Dr. Occult and her husband, and they escape the burning laboratory which consumes the scientist and his inventions.
While the squash-buckling Henry Duval was drawn from the films of Douglas Fairbanks, Dr. Occult was likely inspired by Van Helsing from Dracula. The artwork and backgrounds on this feature were superior to the Duval strips, but they're still rather rough. As I mentioned, Siegel often used pseudonyms when writing multiple features in his fanzines. The same holds true as all the Dr. Occult strips bear the byline Legger and Roots. In fact, the only episode of Dr. Occult, which ran until Morphon number 32, to actually have the Siegel and Schuster byline was the Dr. Mystic episode published in Comics Magazine. I'll be discussing that one further in a later episode. Not only was the appearance of Dr. Occult in New Fun Number 6 important in the sense that it was the first published work by two of the most important creators of the era, it also turns out to be, albeit retroactively, the first appearance of the DC Universe. Let me provide some foundation to help me explain that statement. DC has published comics for 75 years now, more than that actually. Many of the characters they publish interact in a shared environment where characters from one feature meet and share adventures with characters from other features. This environment is known as the DC Universe. Now technically there have been many universes that have existed over the decades, each, conta each containing what amounts to different versions of some of the same characters. Some of these universes coexisted side by side, such as Earth 1 and Earth 2, while in other cases one universe essentially replaced the old. I'm not going to get into detail about that now, uh, I may do it at that at a later time. Suffice it to say that New Fun Number 6 is the beginning of the first shared universe. So how exactly does that work? There's nothing in the Doctor Occult story which really ties it to any characters outside the strip. In fact, none of the Doctor Occult stories published up until 1938 did so. Why then is this the first? It all starts with the JSA. In All-Star Comics number 3, published in late 1940, DC decided to have characters from several of its top features meet up and discuss their adventures. Those characters would form a team of heroes known as the Justice Society of America. It was the first time characters from their own independent strips crossed over. Now we had proof that Hawkman existed in the same world that the Flash lived. Green Lantern and Dr. Fate both lived there too, and so did all the other characters. But uh, that also meant that the previously published stories featuring these characters must take place on that world also. Superman and Batman did not appear in the first meeting of the JSA, but they were said to be honorary members of the team. They showed up on a couple of later occasions too. So while All-Star number 3 in 1940 was the first time there was a crossover between features, Stories as far back as Superman's first appearance in 1938 were also part of that same shared universe. Now, is there anything that, ex that precludes DC's earliest features, such as Jack Woods or Sondra of the Secret Service, from existing in that same universe? No, not really. But there's never been any connection there either. We might know, for example, that the Boy Commandos in Green Lantern exist in the same universe even though they've never met, because both of them have met the Sandman. So, by association, Dobie Dickles and Brooklyn exist in the same world. However, without an association to another strip, most features are considered to be independent of the DC Universe proper. Jack Woods and Sandra never appeared outside their own strips, 
nor did any characters from any other strips appear in theirs. Therefore, those strips have no real connection to the larger DC universe and could be viewed as existing in their own little worlds. Using this criteria to define the universe, Superman's first appearance in 1938 held the distinction as the first appearance of the DC universe all the way up until 1981. That all changed. No, not in the pages of Roy Thomas's new All-Star Squadron, where you might expect, but in a backup story in Detective Comics number 500. That story reintroduced Slam Bradley, another Siegel and Schuster creation, who debuted in Detective Comics number 1 in 1937 and ran until, until 1949 in Detective. In this story, Slam interacts with the likes of Roy Raymond, Jason Bard, Christopher Chance, and several others. This firmly establishes his adventures as part of DC's shared universe, something that hadn't happened in his own strip from the 1940s. Slam never met anyone from other features until now. Slam's reappearance retroactively made Detective Number 1 the first appearance of a DCU character superseding Action Number 1 at least for a few years. In 1985, we got another pre-Superman character brought into the DCU. This time, it was Dr. Occult himself, in the pages of All-Star Squadron number 49. Occult had not been seen in comics in more than 45 years, there was, but there he was, teaming with Our Man, Dr. Fate, and several others. He was now officially in the DC Universe, making New Fun number 6 a landmark as the first appearance of the DC Universe 50 years after the fact. To date, no other pre-New Fun number 6 characters have been broked into the DCU. Speed Saunders, who debuted alongside Slam Bradley in Detective Number 1, has now been connected to Hawkgirl, Kendra Sanders, in recent times. But Dr. Occult is still the earliest DC feature to be included in the shared universe. Now it's time to dip into the Metropolis mailbag to see what you, the listeners, have to say about the show. The first letter begins, Mike, glad to see episode 5 in the queue this morning and get back into learning about some new fun comics. Buckskin Jim seems like it would have been a good upside potential as a property. The Westward Frontier expansion of the Settlers is a ripe area for stories and doesn't get nearly the sort of attention which the Old West gets in pretty much any other medium. I also like the art style on the pages you posted it for it, with the stark black lines and chiseled features on all your characters, or all of the characters. I'm a sucker for these sort of historical features, so maybe I'm more prone, but this one gets my interest. Also good to see some funny animals. I have been on a funny animal kick lately, namely the Hanna-Barbera ones. So I've been perusing a lot of older, older school, golden age, funny animal books lately. Public domain books, mostly. I never thought about New Fun Number 1 having funny animals in it. I guess in retrospect, it makes perfect sense, since the name of the book has fun in it, after all. The gag in the Osa and uh, Peline strip is a classic sort of two-page funny animal gag, but the enthusiasm with, with which also kicks says, you kick me first, just cracks me up. He's so darn earnest about having his friend kick him in the rear end. The text 
uh, pieces are interesting as artifacts more than anything else. As someone who has read a fair share of 40s, 50s, 60s, or and war comics, I am well acquainted with the postal code requirement text pieces, and most of the time they are easily skippable. I do want to mention a few general exceptions which I have noticed over the years. In the EC, horror, and crime books, typically the text pieces were every bit as lurid as the comic features and generally worthwhile. Of course, EC comics were always worthwhile, so they have that going for them. A more, a more surprising revelation which I discovered during a big read of war comics last year for an online promotion I did celebrating Veterans Day was that in Charlton's war books, they would often use text pieces as essays on military history. Not exactly encyclopedic, but better and much more interesting to me than trying to tell a full war story in a page and a half. Food for thought. I'm really enjoying your show as you set, shed some light on an era of DC which I admit to know absolutely nothing about. Can't wait to see what other kind of unusual and funny features we see before the advent of the superheroes. Thanks for a great show, Luke, Jack, and Eddie. Thanks for your comments, Luke. For those of you who don't know, Luke runs a Hawkman blog called Being Carter Hall. He's also a fellow podcaster and can be found on the Earth Destruction Directive, another great Two True Freaks offering. It's good to know that others are enjoying these pre-spandex comics and stories. I was concerned when I came up with the idea for the show that it would be too eclectic for everybody. Superheroes are so dominant in the comics field, especially right now. I was worried that no one would care about these comics that I'm covering. I'm pleasantly surprised that there has been as much interest as there has been. I think it's important to remember that comics are not just superheroes. Although I like those too. If you are waiting for Superman, I've only got two more years of comics to cover before I reach 1938. Coverage of 1935 took six episodes, so hang in there. Let's see what else is in the mailbag. Here's one with a subject that says, Enjoying your amazing world of DC history podcasts. Hi, Mike. I have, been, I have been enjoying all of your Mike's Amazing World of DC history podcasts. I look forward to each one and listen to them on the drive home from work. I have noticed that each episode that you have improved the sound quality of the podcast. Thank you, the fascinating DC history lesson from the very beginning of DC Comics. It is very interesting to see how comic books originally began and how they slowly transitioned from mimicking comic strips to their own entity and identity. Comic books sure have come a long way and are constantly changing the storytelling, matching the trends and interests of the era that they came out in. My name is Jeremy Heyer. I have been collecting for 30 years with about 14,000-ish comics. I am working on completing all of the Batman and Detective from the Silver Age to present. Basically all of the 12 centers to present. I'm getting pretty close. I also have recently just finished my Iron Man Tales of Suspense complete run just last year. It seems that series completists are few and far between anymore. The comic book stores as of the last 10 years or more do not specialize in back issues anymore. Thank God for eBay and online stores for back issues. I applaud your monumental task of owning every DC comic app. DC has ever made. Uh, I would imagine that you're getting the very early issues are, is going to be quite a challenge. 
I've been following your website and your Facebook page for quite some time and had a couple of questions for you. How do you keep track of what comics you have and which ones you need? Do you use your an Excel spreadsheet exclusively for this? How do you organize your comic collection? Do you store them by titles? And how do you handle when a box overflows when you insert issues in the middle of a series? Do you have certain personal requirements when hunting down issues based such as a minimum condition of a book, complete and intact covers, although settling for lower grade to get more comics? I have amassed a large collection of e-comics, comic coffee table books, including the wonderful 75 years of DC Comics, which I think I mentioned earlier in the episode. If you are looking for any e-comics, let me know, and I will happy, be happy to hook you up. Uh, keep up the great work on the podcast and the re- website. Sincerely, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. That is quite a collection you have. I do agree that the completest is nearing extinction. I blame this primarily on the publishers that keep renumbering their books. There's just no sense of history in today's comics, even though they are just rehashing some of the same ground that's been covered years earlier in a much more violent way. I don't see modern readers following titles. The closest they get now are those that follow creators, which is a shame. Uh, As soon as their guy leaves a book, they quit. It's a shame, really. Superman and others have endured all these years because they are great characters. Too bad current DC has no idea what to do with them. More proof that modern comics are just not for me. On to your questions. Yes, I do use Excel as the primary tool to keep track of my collection. The company master lists on my website are actually slimmed down versions of my personal tracking lists. I also have my want list, which is a simple text file. This list can be found on my website. It's currently got around 2,700 books on it, uh, all from 1961 and earlier. My DC collection is 100% complete from 1961 to 2010. My collection is organized by publisher, then alphabetically by title. I am primarily a DC collector, so all the DC boxes are in order and open for easy access. I use standard long boxes for comics, short boxes for trades. Um, I think I've got about 150 of both 150 long boxes and 150 short boxes, or somewhere thereabouts. I do have about uh, 8,000 books from other publishers, maybe 9,000. A lot of duplicates from the 90s, obviously. Um, These are stored in long boxes, but I generally keep those under the DC boxes, since I don't access them often. The system is pretty good and organized. I can generally get to any DC book in my collection in 60 seconds or less. Other publishers may take a couple minutes, because I may have to move a box to get to them. But I know where everything is. All the boxes I have are pretty much jam-packed full. Uh, So when I get new stuff to be inserted, I have to pull some out of the back uh, uh, to get them into the box. And then I take the ones I pulled out of the back and put them in the front of the next box and have to take some out of the back and so on and so on. I usually end up building up little piles about every 20 boxes or so that uh, don't fit, and then when the when I get enough piles together, I'll get a new long box and merge them all together so that uh, the long box gets filled up. Um, hopefully that makes sense. It can be a pain sometimes, but I'm kind of used to it. But uh, yeah, organizing the collection does take a little bit of time. Uh, grading requirements. Uh, 
comics I buy need to be complete, including covers. Um, I pretty much don't buy anything high grade. High grade, high grade prices are ridiculous. Um, I'd rather ha get a good book in good condition than a near mint one. Um, you know, a good comic runs about ten bucks. A near mint one runs a thousand. I'd rather just pay the ten bucks and get a bunch of them. Uh, many of my silver and, and bronze age books were purchased before the prices went completely crazy. So I do have some nice ones in those areas. But nearly all my golden age is uh, lower grade. Usually VG at the best. Um, I do have a few nicer ones. Uh, it just depends on when I got them and how much I paid for them. I was not going to pay crazy prices to get a high grade book though. Uh, my want list is big enough that I can actually still be a bargain hunter. Um, if a book isn't the right price, I don't buy it. Uh, there's also several different books that uh, can be found for a bargain price. Um, I can still find humor books and you know some of the genre books for pretty cheap superhero stuff, and stuff that's costly. And if anyone wants to support my podcast or the website, uh, feel free to check my want list and send me something. Uh, always good to get stuff in the mail. Um, so I'll be expecting that action number one in the in the mail any day now. Uh, thanks for your comments, Jeremy. Uh, my last email comes from Professor Allen and reads, Podcast Episode 5, Microfiche. Mike, I'm a big fan of your new podcast. Your dedication to reading all the DC books is interesting, and I look forward to following you on this quest. I'm curious about the microfiche copies you have in your collection, and have a few questions. When were these produced, and did DC have any control over the process? Was that uh, for archival purposes, or were they sold? How did you acquire them? How much space did they take up? Do you have a microfiche player? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Professor Allen, host of the Quarter Bin Podcast and co-host of Shortbox Showcase. Alan, uh, the microfiche were produced by a company called Microcolor in the early 1990s. I got mine mostly secondhand from eBay, and I got quite a few of them from another collector who just gave them gave me his. Uh, Microcolor uh, still has a website that lists many of the comic fiche that were produced. Uh, there were more than that were released that aren't listed on the site last time I checked. There's a bunch more that I don't see listed there, so I don't know how current that list is. Um, I'm sure there's a list out there on the internet somewhere. Um, the fish, however, are no longer available from Microcolor, and they haven't been for a long, long time. Um, they lost the license, I think. Um, I do see them turn up on eBay occasionally. Um, they were sold in groups of five and came in envelopes. Uh, generally about eight bucks an issue, I think. So you got like five issues for like forty bucks. Um, I paid significantly less for mine because uh, I got mine secondhand. There are a variety of fish viewers. Um, I bought mine at a secondhand store. Um, the quality of these fish is generally pretty poor, um, but it's better than nothing. I'm not sure where the comics came from that were photographed um, for the fish. But a lot of them look to be file copies. Um, I know there's quite a few of my Flash comics ones have like uh, spiral bound notebook bindings in them, so they look like they came from bound copies at some point. Um, of course, not everything was released on microfiche, which is why my huge personal collection comes in handy to fill in the big gaps. And I've managed to track down everything else in one way or another. 
Uh, I wouldn't be able to do the show without these microfish, though. Uh, so that about wraps up this episode. Feedback on the show can be sent to mike at dcindexes.com. Please feel free to visit my website at www.mikesamazingworld.com. Don't forget to check out other great podcasts on the Two True Freaks Network at www.twotruefreaks.com. And be here next time as I begin diving into DC's second series, New Comics. Thank you for listening to Mike's Amazing World of DC History.